This is Judaism Unbound, episode 130, Israel Optional Judaism. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And before we get started with our look back at our most recent set of episodes dealing with the relationship of American Jews and Israel and actually looking back on the whole series, we just wanted to talk about other ways that you can interact with us, whether online or in person. So the first one that we want to mention was a shout out to my dad for pointing out to us that although it says on our website that you can bring us to your community, we never really talk about that on the podcast. And a lot more people listen to the podcast than come to our website. You should correct that. There's really good things on our website. (laughs) But in the meantime, we want to put out there that we do come to folks' community. There are all kinds of ways that we could do that. So if you're uh, part of an organization that might want to come have us come out there and do a podcast live, or if you'd like us to come and speak there, or if you might have some consulting type questions that you think we could help with, or all sorts of other ways, we would be really excited and we are really excited to come out to individual communities and try to bring some of the Judaism Unbound thinking into action, not only through your ears, but also through all the other parts of your body. So um, please invite us to come to your community, whether you're an individual, a organization, or anything else. And I want to mention one particular project that we're involved with that is a way to uh, get us to your community, or at least to get me there. I've been able to lead a fellowship called the Spark Fellowship to Ignite Institutional Innovation, along with some colleagues at CLAL, the organization that we've had a lot of folks on the podcast from, and sponsored by the UJA Federation of New York. And this has been a project for New York area synagogues, and now we're expanding it beyond synagogues. And we are currently accepting applications. So if you're someone who's involved in a synagogue that you think wants to be more innovative, you should head over to www.sparkfellowship.org to check out that program. We're accepting applications through the end of the month. And if you're not in the New York area and you want to bring a program like this to your community, we would be very excited to talk to you. So you can send an email to info at sparkfellowship.org to find out more about bringing this great long-term fellowship to your community. In addition to that, CLAL runs a number of programs under the umbrella of its GLEAN network. These programs are called Shift and Start, and they're aimed at folks who see themselves as spiritual entrepreneurs, whether or not they're currently working at a large existing legacy organization or they want to do a startup. So a program called Shift is a six-week program to sort of work on your mindset and think in new ways about what you're doing as a spiritual leader. And Start is a 20-week program that includes a certificate in spiritual entrepreneurship from Columbia Business School that's really aimed at organizational leaders, again, whether they're startups or existing organizations that really want to take a deep dive into learning new mindsets about innovation and how to apply them on the ground. If you're interested in those programs, you should head over to www.glean, that's G-L-E-A-N, network.org. We're really grateful to the START program, that 20-week certificate, because Uh, I was enrolled in it on behalf of Judaism Unbound, and it really helped us move from uh, an idea to a little bit more of uh, a business, shall we say, a nonprofit business, of course, which leads me to my final plea, which is that uh, one of the things I learned in that program was that if you don't ask, you don't receive. So we're really, we're really hoping that folks out there might be interested in uh, giving us a small donation. You can look down on your phone right now in the podcast app and you can click on a link to go to our website to 
uh, give us a donation. You can also go to www.judaismunbound.com slash donate. We love donations of any amount and we need donations of any amount. We often suggest perhaps $1 for every episode that you listen to. So if you're a regular listener, something like $50 a year. Of course, we love donations that are much larger than that and encourage them. And you can also sign up in various different ways to give a monthly donation. And whether that monthly donation is $1 or $5 or more than that, it, it really helps a lot. And we're incredibly grateful. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right. We're super grateful for whatever you can do financially, especially. But even if you can't, you can always leave us a five-star rating. You can give us a review in iTunes. All of those things help get people to our podcast and open up our listenership to a broader audience. So it means a lot. And just in terms of situating us, we wanted to give you a sneak preview of what's coming next after this debrief episode of our Israel unit. And that's going to be actually, you know, a much less controversial issue, God. Um, and we say that jokingly, but also kind of genuinely, because in a lot of ways, especially outside of orthodoxy, God is a much less controversial topic in American Judaism than Israel is. So we're going to be exploring the idea of God, different ways that people conceptualize God and also ways that people don't conceptualize God or maybe don't build God so deeply into their Jewish experience. Um, all of those angles are going to be coming up. So we thought that we would let you know as this unit wraps up and we prepare for the next one. So Lex, I thought it would be helpful to start out by just kind of laying out in a, in a pretty basic way what we're really talking about here when we're talking about the American Jewish relationship with Israel or the relationship of American Jews and Israel. Because I think that some of our conversations may have sort of assumed that we all kind of know what we're talking about in terms of the issues. But I also think that for a lot of American Jews today, there's sort of a sense of disappointment, a sense that the idealistic view of Israel that they might have been raised on isn't fully realized in practice, whether that has to do with actions that Israel takes towards the Palestinians, which folks can see in various gradations of terrible, right? Some people think it's just unfortunate and some people think it's, you know, war crimes, right? That people have different ways that they look at the same act actions. But along that whole continuum, folks are basically saying, I think, that they're disappointed, that they feel like this isn't the way that they hoped that Israel would be towards another people. And then on the flip side, there are folks who say Israel is being extra careful. And what can you really expect? And how can Israel be held to the highest possible standard? I mean, an unrealistic standard when it's under attack from folks. And they're not necessarily all that disappointed. I think that that's one uh, area where there's kind of a, a, a real good faith uh, difference of opinion within the Jewish community. You know, and I ultimately think that what's going on here then becomes, and I, I think this is where we want to talk through most of the episode, what do we do when we have a real and good faith difference of opinion within the Jewish community on sort of how bad things are in Israel? Yeah, I mean, I think that this tension that you identify is really important. There's there's so many groups that we've been either alluding to or speaking with as part of, I mean, some of our guests fit in these groups um, that collectively make up some something that we call the American Jewish relationship to Israel that is super complex and super different depending on where you are and who you're talking to. Um, I think that naming in addition to the groups that you cited, so the folks that see Israeli actions as something between unfortunate and war crimes um, and those who, who don't perceive a problem. I think, um, and we've mentioned this here or there, there's all the people that just 
don't really have that much to say about Israel. And one issue I think that it's come up in some of these episodes, but that I really want to amplify is that just the bandwidth issue, the, 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 the amount of space that Israel takes up in American Judaism is massive. So I thought I'd name that because the hidden secret is that in addition to all these folks that do have a stick in the game, there's a lot of folks who don't. They care deeply about their Jewish identities, about Jewish history, about Jewish contemporary culture, whatever. Israel isn't where their their deep passion plays out. So naming that, but also just revisiting the point you made, like, yeah, this is the defining elephant in the, in most of our rooms. Like th- this is lurking. And in some rooms, the strategy is to avoid the conversation of Israel. In other rooms, the strategy is to bring it up, but in a, in a specific orientation um, that sometimes can block out other orientations to Israel. And we're not doing a good job of actually engaging this question, despite the fact that we're doing so in a million and a half ways. Like there might be all these projects that are taking up all this bandwidth, but we still haven't figured out how to do so in a healthy way. So it feels like whether you want to take the issue of Israel and the Palestinians or take the issue of Israel for Jews, right? Israel as a place where that does or doesn't have religious pluralism for Jews or that does or doesn't stand up for what a Jew might believe a Jewish state ought to look like uh, for Jews, right? Whichever one of those two parameters we're talking about, I think that there's, in my mind, like at least four kind of positions that there might be. Number one is people who say things are basically just fine. You know, number two are people who say this, there's a very problematic situation here, but it can be fixed, right? Let's work for societal change. Let's work for change of, of, you know, let's work for a peace process. Let's work for a two-state solution. Let's work for whatever. There's a group that might say the situation is so far gone, right, that Israel can't be salvaged, right? And I'm disconnecting from this, or I'm going to start working against Israel or whatever the, the choice might be there. And the fourth place is I don't, I, I, it's just not that important to me, right? It's not at the top of my list, right? It's, it's, I've just never been something that I'm all that interested in, right? And feel like those are sort of four positions that people hold various degrees of. Do you, do you think that that's a good description of the landscape? I really would push on the third group. So you, you said that there, you, you identified a group that sort of doesn't think Israel can be salvaged and, and like you use the framing of working against it. I, like, I think that's a perception of men, of many people of a certain group of people. Um, and so let's name so like people who, for example, support the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement. We've talked about this. People who are involved with Jewish Voice for Peace. Like there's a perception that these people have decided Israel has no hope and the only orientation one can have with it that's worthwhile is to work against it. And in a certain sense, I guess that that's true. Like if if what we mean by Israel is like the Israeli government and certain ideas of Israel as a state that prioritizes Jews over others. But I actually find in most conversations with folks that are working for some form of like binational solution or a solution that would that would challenge the vast majority of Israeli citizens and even many in American Jewish life, I don't think that they're they're working against something. I think they're primarily still in that second court category you laid out. They're coming from a hopeful place. It's just what they're hoping for is an Israel that is defined not only by its Jewishness and by Jewish statehood, but also 
by its Palestinian inhabitants. So a place that would that would represent everybody, whatever their background. That does indeed challenge ideas of Zionism, and many of these people wouldn't call themselves Zionists. Um, even though we've talked about Zionism being expansive and cultural Zionism and different historical kinds of Zionism where maybe that could have fit in. In the contemporary sense, there are ways that those people aren't Zionists. But I don't think that when you talk to them, they're they're coming primarily from a place from having written something off. They might have written off the two-state solution. They might have written off the idea of a Jewish state that is Jewish in a way that it's not other kinds of representation. But I think they still are coming from a hopeful place. Okay, well, fair enough. You know, I, I think that it's interesting to sort of uh, uh, make that distinction in that third category. You know, I was going to actually also make another distinction, which is that I think that a lot of people who are lumped into the first category, the ones who sort of uh, say, you know, basically everything's okay. And the third category, the one that says, you know, everything's terrible. I think that a lot of folks are are actually placed in those categories, not by themselves, but by others, right? By others claim that that's what they're saying, and that's not actually what they're saying. So for example, on the on the among the folks who are perceived to be saying everything's okay, don't be so hard on Israel. I think a lot of them actually, if you got them locked in a room and you said, do you really think that everything's okay? They would say, no, of course not everything's okay. But I mean, I think that a lot of those people, they, if, you, if you're in a private conversation with them, they will say, look, I, I see the problems that you're raising. I don't like everything that Israel does vis-a-vis the Palestinians. And I certainly don't like everything that Israel does vis-a-vis religious pluralism. But I, I don't want to have this public conversation where Israel is constantly being criticized because I think that ultimately, right, I'm afraid that Israel is being treated to a double standard. I think I'm afraid, right, there's a lot of fear that Israel's going to be delegitimized. There's all kinds of fears going on, which may or may not be uh, accurate, and they may or may not be overblown, but they're real. And a lot of people believe that the right way to, to talk about this is as if, you know, Israel isn't isn't really that bad. You know, what about Syria? They're so much worse, right? There's a lot of that on, on that side. And on the other side, among the folks who, you know, again, are perceived to be saying that, you know, I'm not on board with this uh, vision of Israel, that it's a, you know, whether we call that Zionism or we say it's a state that's really, uh, you know, mainly a Jewish state or whatever, however you want to put that. So, yeah, so some of those folks, you know, I think you're right to point out that they're not um, saying that in a kind of negative, we hate Israel kind of way. They're saying that we actually have different ideals that are motivating us, right? That we, for example, don't believe in single nation states anymore, right? We think that that's a 20th century phenomenon. We don't think it's good for the world for there to be any states of a single nation. So we're actually holding Israel to the same standard. I mean, there's that group of folks, but there's also another group of folks that actually, you know, and I think Peter Beinart was a great example of this, right? Who in their own understanding of themselves, they're a liberal Zionist, right? They they do believe that Israel uh, should be a Jewish state and a democratic state. And they're just putting a real thumb on that democratic part. And they're saying that Israel is in danger of not being a democratic state. And a democratic state is just as much a part of Zionism as the Jewish part. And I'm going to raise the alarm here. And I think a lot of those folks get labeled as like anti-Israel. I think you're right to name that there are many people who, if you lock them in a room, they would name all sorts of things they would change about Israel. That's different. So that group of people is doing something different from what the growing group of American Jews are doing who actively question not merely particular actions 
of Israel, but the fact of Jewish statehood and whether that can exist in a way that is democratic. Um, so I'm like bringing up Peter Beinart's a great example because Peter Beinart believes to the depths of his soul and argues passionately that Israel can be and should be both a Jewish and democratic state and that it is not currently acting as a democratic state, most notably in the West Bank and through the occupation. That That's his line of thinking. I think we also need to name and value and cherish and really candidly elevate because their voices are not being elevated enough that there are many people who don't believe Israel as a Jewish state in the sense that Jews would have particular rights or privileges that others do not have. There are people that that do not believe that that should manifest. And so for them, they can't look, and I should be honest, like this is a group that I'm large, and it's probably clear in my voice. This is a group that I feel connected to. Whether I'm a Zionist or not, honestly, I don't fully know. And it depends on how we're defining Zionism. It depends on all these issues we've been wrestling with. But what is clear to me is that the the kinds of changes I perceive as being urgent and necessary right now or as soon as possible to Israel as it exists are not surface level, small, nuanced changes. They are huge societal kinds of changes that in a basic way would shift the relationship of Israel and its government to those who are not Jewish. It would mean that things like the recent nation state bill that enshrines Jewishness as a defining characteristic of the state in a way that other kinds of cultures or ethnicities or religions are not, it would, it would mean that that kind of thing wouldn't happen. And so I, I really want to name that thinking such things, and I'm biased because I, I happen to be a person who does think such things, but thinking such things needs to be reasonable or acceptable in Jewish spaces, not because it makes me allowed in or because it makes me permitted. It's because literally what we are saying, if it's not okay, is that just a vast percentage and a growing percentage of the American Jewish community can't participate. In a world where that group is is a huge group that wants to be involved in Jewish life, that's creating forms of Jewish life, we, we can't continue to live under the illusion that silencing their voices is going to somehow do constructive work for the Jewish population of the United States. It's, it's not. That you can't say writ large, oh, this entire ideological group of people is going to not be allowed to contribute to our communities in the same way and think that that's somehow going to create a community that's strong and vibrant in the ways it needs to be. It's not going to be. And for that reason, we have to be able to say, you know what? Your opinion on Israel is not going to make you in or out of American Jewish institutions. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know how big or how vast it is. I I think it's certainly growing. I I guess what I would say, though, is that to me, it doesn't matter how big it is. You know, to me, it's a question of this is a group of Jews who have beliefs that I don't have. Right. And there are a lot of Jews like that in the world, right, that that have beliefs about God that I don't have, you know, and that have beliefs about whether Judaism is a legal system that I don't have. And I it's very easy for me. And I think it's very easy for a lot of people to relate to those Jews without labeling them in a way that attempts to marginalize them from the Jewish conversation. But the group that you've just described is uh, a a group that people seem to have a lot of difficulty relating to in that way, and b 
the other point that I want to make that that I, I hear your point very much, and I think it's really important to name that group and to sort of take seriously that group and to love that group. And in addition, I think that there's a lot of other people that actually don't hold that those beliefs that are labeled as having those beliefs. And I may be one of those. Like, I, I think it was in, it's interesting how you said, you know, I'm not sure what I think, you know, if I'm a Zionist or not, I'm not sure. You know, I, I think I'm not sure if I'm in the fourth group of people who kind of say this isn't my priority, or maybe I'm in the second group of the folks who are like liberal Zionists, right? I'm not sure. It makes sense to me that if you could have a Jewish state that was a democracy and a had a pluralistic vision of Judaism, that would be a state that I would be interested in, in, in having. You know, that, that's sort of my feeling. Whether that can actually happen, like that's an open question. And I'm actually interested in that question being discussed. And I feel like I'm at odds with a lot of the conversation out there that people seeming to be saying, I want to talk to the folks who disagree with me less and less. And that's, and, and so anyway, the, the point that I wanted to make though about the that third group is that, look, if you're a person who doesn't believe that a Jewish state of Israel should exist, you know, as a Jewish state, and you'd rather have a, a state that didn't have a, a Jewish character in particular, like, I think that's a very respectable position to hold, and I'm willing, happy to talk to you. But if you're a person like Peter Beinart, who actually does believe that there should be a Jewish state, I don't think that you should be labeled by somebody who disagrees with you as if you are in that group that you're not choosing to align with. And, and what I have a real challenge about is that I think that the group that is vast is the number of Jews, that, whether they sort of position themselves with what's called the right or position themselves with what's called the left. I think that, you know, back to the closed locked room again, I think that if you got a lot of those Jews locked in a room together, you would actually be hearing variations on a theme, right? Which is that Israel is basically something that I support. However, there are some really serious problems going on there. And I would love it if those problems would be corrected, right? Um, I think most Jews actually believe that, just as I think that most Jews actually believe that God is not a man in the sky with a beard. So we've been using passive voice a little bit. Um, and I want to I wanna say some things that I think are true in the active voice. The people that are doing the labeling. So people are labeled, that's the passive voice, people are labeled as traitors or is it like, we should be explicit. Jewish institutions are often doing that labeling. It's not just individuals, it's not like actual Jewish institutions with entire initiatives built around defining Jewishness a certain way that includes support for Israel. And that doesn't mean no critique of Israel. It, it just means putting a lot of time and effort into support for the state of Israel, um, monetarily, otherwise, like those institutions are often the ones that are doing the labeling. It's not just interpersonally that people are calling each other names. It's that entire organizational infrastructures are crafted around the idea that if you believe that Israel should be a very different kind of Jewish state or not a Jewish state, you're ultimately not part of the team. And what you're doing needs to be, at the very least, not centered, and at most, actively barred. And I'm not claiming, I'm, we don't need to get into the particulars of which institutions are saying that in which ways, but to me, that's a huge shame. This is That being the fact of Jewish institutions, often Jewish representative institutions, institutions that have been founded not just to like represent some 
portion of the Jews, but to represent like entire Jewish communities in a city or in a region or in North America, um, it, that those institutions are saying this kind of Jew who believes this set of things or this spectrum of things about Israel is going to be in our quote unquote big tent. And this set of Jews who thinks other things is not like at the moment you do that. And this connects back to the open hill episode. The moment you do that, you're, you can't say that you are also a representative organization of the American Jewish community for all the flaws of that term that we've talked about. Like if you want to say that, okay, but you are making a choice to be an organization for some subsection, not sub in the sense of lower, but some group within the American Jewish population and not all of it. And the second you make that choice, there absolutely need to be organizations that pop up that are there for the, the ones that you've just rejected. I refuse to believe anything other than that every single American Jew deserves to have an institutional body where they can see themselves. Yeah, and the, but then those same institutions criticize those new organizations that those folks have built for themselves. Right, and 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 so like basically, I say all this because it it loops into Brant Rosen and Shedek Chicago and like starting up new organizations and some of the broad themes of our show, which are that okay, so given that we have these problems where we can't listen to each other, and more than not listening, we have institutions that are actively making choices to bar. Folks, and look, they, they might not literally bar them from the doors, but to bar their voices from platforms, let's say. Um, given that that's the case, I'm absolutely going to call for more aesthetic Chicago's in the world. My question is like, how can we create those? Or if we're not going to create them, how can we get institutions to shift the way they operate so that we don't need to? And and I'm I'm leaning toward the former because I don't know that there's much hope that we can really have fully pluralistic, fully open Jewish spaces because that's hard. Yeah, well, in a way, what you're raising, it's sort of it's like the local American Jewish community version of what of these big picture questions that we're talking about Israel, because in a way, it's a question of like, can the large Jewish organizations change? in the way that they're looking at this issue or or not, you know, and that's very similar to the people that are saying, and, you know, you're right to point out that not everybody's looking on this uh, question, but the people that are saying, you know, can Israel change in the ways that I want Israel to change or not? And what do I do if I come to the conclusion that it can't or it won't? You know, do, do I try to act for reform from within, like Susan Silverman and Leslie Sachs were urging, right, you know, and, and keep keep fighting the good fight, right? Even if I think that it's uh, very unlikely that we're going to win that fight, that's one option. Another option is to engage in versions of civil disobedience, you know, similar to how I think that a lot of, if not now's work has been. And, you know, one thing, and I think I pointed it out in one conversation, but one thing to understand about civil disobedience is that I think whether people intend it this way or not, you know, civil disobedience often actually comes with a certain recognition of the goodness of the person that you're fighting against, right? Because civil disobedience doesn't work against Bashar Assad. You know, it doesn't work against a actual evil person who doesn't care and he's just happy to kill all of you. So civil disobedience basically requires and you and one if one is kind of the on the other side of the civil disobedience, right? One should understand that those who are engaging in civil disobedience actually are saying something nice about me, right? They're saying that they believe in me, that they it's like, you know, Darth Vader, they're still good in him, right? You know, or, or whatever. But 
Here's the thing. If the organizations that are either being, you know, requested to be more open or that civil disobedience is being engaged against and they don't see it that way, you know, as a compliment, right? Like if they if they continue to turn those folks away, then yeah, I think like it's it's actually interesting to make the analogy to the LGBTQ world. Uh, as we did, you know, early on in the podcast, when we started to talk to some folks who are doing amazing things like B'nai Lapi with Svara or the various LGBTQ synagogues, and that those institutions came about at a time when the Jewish community basically rejected those folks. But I, I do have to say that I'm, I'm glad to see that the people who are being cast out are not going away. You know, I'm glad to see that they created Tzedek Chicago or whatever and, and just say, we're going to hang out here in the wilderness for a while, and, and that's okay. It's interesting because you actually often, at least this is my claim, you end up changing the very institutions that we're talking about more by simply starting up different ones than by trying to work within them because they maintain a kind of power when you are still there that ultimately perpetuates a status quo. And I think that's what If Not Now is kind of doing. Um, I think it's what others are doing. Um, Yeah, I, I just, I really think that it's important additionally to just hammer home the the representative point because typically, whether it's civil disobedience or otherwise, the organizations that are being protested, um, this is not always the case, but often it's it's organizations that are claiming through PR materials or through messaging or whatever that they represent a Jewish community writ large. Like, I'll be honest with you, like, I, I don't support APAC, for example, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, but like, I don't think they have some responsibility to represent Jews. First off, they're not even that's it's like a poor example because they're not a Jewish organization in the way that many others are, but let's let's take um I don't know, like if not now, like if not now doesn't claim to represent everyone. They have a specific set of points and they know that if people don't if people disagree with the idea of ending American Jewish support for the occupation, like they're not being represented by If Not Now. Um, it's when you have organizations that are having their cake and eating it too by saying, we represent the Jewish community. Also, we think that Israel should exist in this X, Y, and Z way. That perhaps for a while was possible to do, or at least it was representing enough of people that it didn't cause a huge backlash. But today, it's just no longer true that you can be a representative organization and stand up and say that you're Zionist. Like, that's not all Jews. So you can never represent everybody, but um, you, you, you can't have your cake and eat it too. And, and I'm actually okay with organizations saying, you know what, we're Zionist and we're not going to be representative anymore. And if organizations said that, I would just say, okay, now we need to come up with the one that's going to be different and create it. Um, but that's not what they're saying. Yeah, I mean, like there, there is a question of, uh, you know, at, at what point, you know, can you say that you represent all Jews, and then, you know, there's a couple of Jews that believe, you know, X, Y, Probably and Z, never. that, um, <laughs> you know, that that you know, say, well, you know, we still represent the vast majority of Jews, you know, and I, I mean, I like, I think it's an open question, I, I, I think, but you know, it, it may be that there's actually a deeper point to what you're saying, which is that we may, we may be exiting the era where any organization should claim to represent all Jews, you know, or to be a home for all Jews. I mean, maybe we don't need that anymore. Maybe it's not realistic or valuable, right? 
right? And here we have to talk, we have to name the organizations, right? I mean, maybe federations, JCCs, Hillel's, you know, what are the organizations that sort of claim to be these umbrella organizations? Maybe maybe their time has passed in a certain way, you know, and, and maybe that, that either means that they should define themselves in a more narrow way, right? And to say, um, you know, we represent a particular subset of Jews or to, or that they just, they just need to go away. You know, they, they just won't be able to sustain themselves anymore because there isn't a large enough group of Jews who are willing to say they represent us. There ultimately is a question of the size, the number of Jews who, you know, hold these, uh, whether they're anti-Zionist or non-Zionist or whatever kinds of positions. Uh, you know, I, I don't know exactly what kind of uh, census data there is in terms of how big that group is. I think it's reasonable to say that there's a question at a certain point about, like, how big does the group have to be in order for you to have to, like, redefine your mission statement so that you don't say that you represent all Jews? And have we gotten there yet? I don't know. And another question to me is the labeling of Jews as anti-Semites who are not anti-Semites, you know, uh, and um, you're the math guy. Is it like the transitive property A equals B, B equals C, and therefore A equals C? Yeah. You know, so there's something property. like, yep. there's something going on here where there is a particular position of support for boycott, divestment, sanctions, BDS, and then folks talk about the BDS movement versus like, as you said, I think in an earlier episode, like there's B's, there's D's and there's S's, you know, and I don't subscribe to the movement, but I think some of these techniques are fine to use, you know, right? There's all kinds of variations on the theme, but it, it seems that a lot of Jewish organizations that claim to represent all Jews have identified this idea of whether you support essentially boycotts and divestment and sanctions on Israel or all of the above or some of those, that that somehow labels you as in cahoots with anti-Semites. Now let's take the let's take the claim. Let's say even if they were anti-Semites, right? Let's even take it as a as for the purposes of discussion. Let's take it as a given that there's a group of anti-Semites out there who want to boycott, divest, and sanction Israel, which I'm sure there are. Like I'm sure if I was an anti-Semite, I would be advocating for that too. But just because I, as a Jew, think that those actions are okay to to entertain doesn't turn me into an anti-Semite any more so than the fact that a uh, lot of anti-Semites voted for Donald Trump. That does not make a Jew who voted for Donald Trump into an anti-Semite as much as I profoundly and deeply and with every fiber of my being believe that that Jew did the wrong thing. I'm going to say something that's going to sound weird, and I'm, I want everyone to notice that it sounds weird. Just because you support Israel doesn't mean you're an anti-Semite. So that sounds weird, I'm assuming, because obviously we've been taught that support for Israel correlates with not being an anti-Semite. But like Richard Spencer is the most well-known. I, I actually don't like using the term anti-Semite as a noun. I, I prefer talking about people like who perpetuate anti-Semitism. Like Richard Spencer does that constantly. And he, um, if if we're going to use the word anti-Semite, it is, he's like the easiest person to put it on. He literally led chants of Jews will not replace us in Charlottesville. This is a guy who thinks terrible things about Jews. He speaks admirably about Israel. He says lots of good things about Israel. I'm not going to go and make the claim that because he says those wonderful things about Israel, that therefore liking Israel makes you an anti-Semite. Like that's ludicrous. Like that doesn't make sense. That's a like a reverse engineering of argumentation that actually doesn't hold up to anything. And yet people do it on, on BDS all the time. They say that because there are people who 
don't like Jews and therefore they don't like Israel. There are like, I really want to hammer home. There are lots of people who actively don't like Jews who will say to you that they do like Israel because it creates a separate place for Jews to be that is not their place. That doesn't mean that the belief that Israel should exist as a as like a haven for Jews or whatever, that doesn't make that an anti-Semitic belief because some people think that because they want the Jews out of their country. Like we have to actually listen to why people think things. And, and for that reason, like talking about BDS as anti-Semitic, like as a system, like it just doesn't work. Like for all the reasons you named that like lots of Jews think it and in ways that are very non that are that are not inconsistent, but also because like there are plenty of people who will yell and scream in opposition to BDS who are anti-Semites. It's like there's anti-Semitism in a lot of places. Like that's the nature of our world. Um, We need to be working to make that less the reality of our world on every place on the continuum of ideologies. Thinking that we can be lazy and say, oh, this is where anti-Semitism lives. If we fight this particular, if we fight this particular belief, like we're going to sort of end anti-Semitism. That's just laziness. It's not true. And what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And I want to say really clearly, you know, that my belief on the other side is the same, that there are plenty of racists who support what Israel is doing in terms of the Palestinians because they hate Arabs or they're racist. And that does not make a person who is says that they're a Zionist and that they love Israel and that they believe in a Jewish state of Israel, that does not ipso facto make them a racist. And they shouldn't be labeled as such just because racists also hold the same positions as they do. And if we can't get this situation fixed, then I think that, you know, if we want to talk about, you know, Judaism Unbound looking towards the future of the American Jewish community, et cetera, et cetera, then I think that we are headed for a schism big time and soon as it relates to Israel, right? I think that we're going to, you know, I think that we may be heading toward a schism down the road in terms of uh things relating to God and religious practice. Um, but that I think, you know, I'm talking geological time there, you know, um, <laughs> but I think that in terms of Israel, we're talking much sooner than that. Uh, and and what you're going to end up with is two American Jewish communities, right? One of which is, um, you know, sort of strongly supportive of everything that Israel does, no matter what. And the other that's basically completely disconnected or in you know, significant opposition to what Israel does, no matter what. The truth is, is that I think people currently and certainly will happen after the schism get pushed into those two camps, because essentially those are the only two camps that the various powers that be, by the way, on on all sides, those are the only two camps that are often allowed to exist, right? You're with us or you're against us from this side or from that side. And if folks want to act that way, then that's what's going to happen. So I'm going to agree and... The old improv game, yes, and um, so I absolutely agree that that having more conversations and and being being in dialogue with each other is a key process. I, I think there's a preamble to that, which for me is like my up on the soapbox, maybe the core big question. Like, I don't think most people know things about Israel. I certainly don't think most American Jews know much about Palestinians. We're talking a basic, basic education problem where absolutely we can gather and convene conversations and and I want to. But like to have conversations that are meaningful, people that are participating in them have to come in with grounding. 
And I don't think that the focus in many of our Jewish institutional spaces that are working around Israel, especially with kids, I don't think the focus has been education. And I've said this a bunch of times, it's not new, but I really want to hammer it home as we end this unit, because as long as the primary verb of Israel that we want American Jews to have is love, we cannot achieve much in conversations. Like if if love is the goal and conversations need to be based in, okay, we all sort of share this love, let's talk about it. There are plenty of American Jews who don't feel that love, either because Israel is just not that central to them. And then there's people who don't love Israel because they just have really deep problems with how it looks and and what it has stood for recently. And as long as educational contexts are built on creating love and not instilling knowledge, I'm actually in a way like arguing for the dialogue piece that you just brought up, but like within the realm of education. So like good education needs to have the voice of a Palestinian who thinks that 1948 was a tragedy. The idea that I went to religious school for a bunch of years and waved a flag and was taught only that 1948 was a joyous, magnificent occasion because it was, because the state of Israel happened. The fact that I only got that and not the idea that it was a tragedy, um, it was a Nakba for many Palestinians, that in and of itself is a tragedy. And education needs on every issue. I would say this about the Torah. We need to say that Abraham and Sarah are not only great and awesome, but also really flawed. We need to say God in the Torah is not only really great. And really, like That's what education is. And we're doing where I actually would say for the most part, especially in like liberal or non-Orthodox or progressive Jewish spaces, we are doing that with a lot of stories. We're allowing people to say, you know what? Noah sucked. Noah messed up. Noah let the world be destroyed. And that's a problem. And I'm not going to have to apologize for that. He didn't even try to get God to not flood the world. Like th That's a perfectly comfortable thing in a lot of places, not all, in a lot of places to say as a sixth grader or as a ninth grader or as a 40-year-old. It's not a comfortable thing to say, maybe Israel shouldn't be a Jewish state in the sense that we think about it. And if we believe that conversation and dialogue matter, those conversations and dialogues have to have as few prerequisites as possible. And love is currently a big old prerequisite. Yeah, what you're saying really speaks to me. You know, it's interesting because as you were speaking, I was thinking to myself, yeah, I think I actually love Israel. And that doesn't come from my education. It comes from my personal experience there. It comes from the fact that I have family members there, close family members, right? As I was talking to my sister who lives in Israel recently. And yeah, for me, it's not third cousins. It's a sister. It's a father, right? Um, but that's none of that comes from education. You know, that all comes from uh, personal experience. And I want to say really clearly that to love Israel is not to be uncritical. In fact, in my view, it's the reverse. It's that, that if I have someone who I love that's, uh, you know, going down a path that I think is really problematic for themselves, that's having the effect of alienating me, right, then, then I want to try to correct that because I don't want to be in a situation where I can't have a relationship anymore with someone that I love. So, you know, I think that there's so much kind of mistaken thinking on so many sides of all this, right? The idea that you can educate to love, the idea that what love means is a lack of criticism. I kind of appreciate the opportunity that you gave me to realize and to state that, yeah, I do love Israel. And, and people don't have to believe me. 
But I have to be able to say that this is coming from a place of love and care. And I believe that the vast majority of people that are activists on topics relating to Israel, and many, many, many who are not activists like me, are actually doing so because they do care. And that's, again, another reason for the tragic dimension of the irony that the folks who are speaking out and who do care the most are being pushed away. I appreciate you naming that you do love Israel, and it allows for me to open up and say that I don't. Um, and I don't say that with some grand gravity. I, I don't expect people to like drop the headphones in shock. I say that as a voice of, I think, a lot of people. And it's not, th- I, I want to be clear, it's not that I hate Israel. It's not that like in, it's not that I actively like every day I wake up and I don't love Israel. Like, it's just a, like, it's what my, I, I'm actually, and I'm actually thinking about the term relationship. Like, I'm reluctant to talk about relationship because even the frame of relationship, it implies the family thing. and Like, it implies maybe not, maybe not fully love, but it implies something deep. It implies connection, like my connection to Israel, my relationship to Israel. Maybe like what I have is like my commentary on Israel or my, I don't know, I don't have the right language. But when I relate to Israel, it, it's, I've been to Israel twice. Great visits, formative visits that I enjoyed really deeply, um, including moments of deep sentimentality and including religious experiences that I still hold with me, including like fun stories about how I got my, I, the seventh Harry Potter book came out when I was in Israel on my summer trip and I got on Israeli hey, TV. Oh, it wasn't on TV, but I was there that same summer and bought the seventh Harry Potter book there. Nice. Yeah. I, I got on TV the night it came out at like, like two in the morning, we were interviewed. It was this whole thing. Like, look at the American tourists and their whole shtick. Um, I have like these warm, fuzzy memories and really like, I also have those about when I recently visited the Czech Republic and spent time in in the Franz Kafka Museum and connected to that corner of my Jewish identity. And Franz Kafka's like really unique, interesting take on Judaism. And then when I went across town and like went in the synagogue where the golem, um, where the like Jewish monster of the 16th century is said to have inhabited and where there's stories and lore about that. And where I've read books about that. Some of my favorite books, The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay by Michael Chavit. Like this like tugged in my heartstrings too. It's not that like, like, so in saying that Israel is like the Czech Republic to me, I'm not saying like, oh, I don't give a shit about Israel. I'm saying, yeah, wow. Like, Jerusalem and Prague were like incredible Jewish experiences for me. So is my my youth in Milwaukee. So is living in Providence. Like these are all special things. Israel isn't extra special for me. It doesn't get an extra love. So like maybe I do love Israel, like, but I also love all those other things. Yeah. Um, and when you say that, I just sort of think that for me to say I love Israel doesn't mean a whole lot different from what you just said, right? It, like it doesn't mean that I love it more or, you know, that I don't love other places. Totally. And, and I think what each of us is trying to do in slightly different ways is sort of complicate the whole terminology. Um, and by the way, like we've actually each, like me going to Israel twice, I think is more than the average. I, I think the average is under two and more than one, uh, like American Jews have And been. that's probably because of birthright. I mean, I think it used to be less than one. Yeah. Uh, like it is by no means strange and you don't have to feel like you've missed something if you've never been to Israel and if you don't have even the sentimentalities I've talked about. The ultimate thing I want to end this unit with communicating is like, we have to say whatever your relationship, and I am using relationship now, whatever your relationship, whatever your commentary on 
Israel and on Palestinians and on this whole grand set of questions, you're here. Let's schmooze. Yeah. And I think like when we say Israel optional Judaism, it's basically because we say everything optional Judaism, (laughs) you know, like this is just one of many pieces. And we live in a time when actually what we need is exploration of of all possible directions. And so to me, the, the cardinal sin is to say that a certain Jewish path is an illegitimate path. With that, we are going to close out this unit. It's our longest unit we've ever done. Send us your thoughts, please. We've gotten a lot of emails and messages about this unit, as you might expect, but we would love more. There's a number of ways for you to do that if you so choose. Um, the first is our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. The second is Twitter at, at Judaism Unbound. Third is our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And the last is through email, Dan at JudaismUnbound.com or Alex at JudaismUnbound.com. We really do respond, so please be in touch. The last reminder is that we're in the midst of this Elul Unbound initiative. Head to our website, um, and it's on the homepage as we speak. And it it just offers a variety of ways to sort of poke and explore and examine and try out and experiment this lead-up month, this on-ramp month to the high holidays. That's what Elul is. It's the last month of the Jewish calendar leading into the new year. And we're trying out different strategies, different modalities for what that holiday, that holla month could mean for us. So check it out. Be in touch with us. And with that... This has been Judaism Unbound.